0: Which teams had the best offseason so far? How much have the Thunder improved? Is the mellows of the Rockets trade dead? The only question left is, say it with me, you win? Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the p Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to have an old buddy of mine on the show today. Nate Duncan, who is probably, as you already know, host of the Daily Dunked On Basketball NBA podcast and the hashtag Twitter NBA show, uh, and Nate, a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's been it's been too long.
1: Yeah, you know, you start your show so much more enthusiastically than I do. I I could learn from you. You you really <laughs> you really bring the energy at the beginning. I'm just like. So we're gonna do our grids today. Like that's like that's, right. <laughs> that's like my start.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, my voice is higher. I think that always helps. But um, also, I took a cold shower today. I don't know if you've heard about that, but I spoke to a bunch of you know NBA trainers and these guys who do all sorts of you know uh, strength and conditioning. Supposedly, the cold shower is supposed to help with like your your um, nervous system and 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 core and all that stuff. Have you ever done that before? Uh,
1: I wish I had a way. Actually, Bob Vulgaris tweeted about this the other day of just putting in an ice machine like above your tub Mm -hmm. so you can actually take like cold baths. Like after I go skiing, I like to take a cold bath because it's usually cold enough there that you can just turn on the water and it'll be like 45 Mm -hmm. degrees. Mm -hmm. Um, But I find it difficult to do at home.
0: Aha. Yes. I You know, it was funny. The first 30 seconds are pretty intense, but then it actually was fine. And so – I might, I might do it again, but as a result, I feel like a million bucks today, and uh, <laughs> I'm ready to go. So, yeah,
1: uh, I, I feel like ten thousand bucks. You feel like so ten thousand? I'm, I'm sorry. I, yeah, well, you I gotta wait go.
0: It sounds like you're still unwinding from your uh, Vegas uh, shenanigans.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, though, I, like, I mean, I probably went out one night while I was there because I was just so busy with sports business classroom. We start at eight a.m. every day, so I'm actually didn't have a, that much time to really. Uh, Socialize after hours, but uh, I, I'm ready to go here. What do you want sure. to talk about? And forgive me,
0: well, I, I didn't mean to imply anything with the word shenanigans. I actually meant, you know, Larry Kuhn. When you hang out with Larry Kuhn and talk about the uh, the CBA all day, that's like, that's shenanigans to me. So <laughs> that's what it sounds like you guys were doing. But let's let's yeah, let's jump right into this. I figured you don't, you like lists, you like grades. Um, we should we should talk about some of these grades. So you know, let me throw this out there. Uh, what do you think? Who had the best offseason so far in terms of free agency and draft moves?
1: Yeah, it's always it's tough to say this, it just because you know some teams just had limited opportunities. You know, a lot of these East teams were just up against the tax; they couldn't do anything. So you always got to judge relative to where they were in terms of their opportunities. But I think clearly, Oklahoma City just pulling Paul George out of their hat, then getting Patrick Patterson three years for the. Taxpayer mid-level exception. I think he, he was a guy who could really help them with his defensive versatility, ability to shoot the ball, uh, I, and then getting Raymond Felton for the minimum to address their open sore at backup point guard that really killed them last year. I thought that they did extremely well.
0: So how do you explain, or maybe maybe I'm this was uh, my head was under a rock, but like it just really felt like nobody had that on their radar that he was going to go there. Uh, and also, I'll throw this out there. It just felt like that deal would have been there weeks uh, from that point, and they could have easily looked around and maybe found something better had they waited. But how did that? How do you explain that? Have you heard anything in the insiders as far as like you know how they kept that so quiet until it happened?
1: Well, OKC is always well known for keeping stuff quiet, and I mean the reason nobody saw them going there is because they didn't have what anybody would have thought of as great assets, right? Even their first rounders were impacted. They had. Portions of their 2018 and 2020 first round picks. So they weren't really able to trade first rounders either. And they didn't have any great young prospects on the roster who weren't making a lot of money already. And Indiana just thought that DeMontis Savonis and Victor Oladipo are really good. And I don't think most people saw it that way, including both of us.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, listen. Uh, well, I guess here's the question. You, I kind of feel like Oladipo has hit his ceiling. I think whatever he did last year, which is probably it was a career high for him, is probably going to be it. Uh, I like Sabonis certainly uh, as a non starter on a decent team. Uh, do you? So I guess obviously you're you're favoring OKC okay, in this deal. What grade would you give the Pacers for this?
1: Well, yeah, we we did our. Eastern conference grades yesterday, but ju- just for the trade itself, I would say F minus for the right. Pacers. And we gave them an F overall. And then OKC, we gave them an A plus for the trade and and then getting, and also they got uh, Andre Robertson to return for reasonable money as well. I like the draft pick of Terrence Ferguson at number 21. I think he's got some two-way potential down the road, really athletic guy, could shoot it. So I, I went with an A plus for them. I thought they really just, uh, to get a team that really looked like it had no way to improve it improved very significantly,
0: okay, so it still is a weird starting lineup uh, as far as I can tell, or what like how the lineups are going to work out here, but I guess you're right when you when you add Paula George to this team, they they're obviously better, I guess it's like where where are we projecting? Where would you say they're going to be next year, what part of the conference or what or where like you know what what rank?
1: Well, I think their defense can be awesome, and so who do we think they're going to start I guess. You have to wonder who they're going to start at the four. Patterson has always come off the bench. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some people are projecting that he's going to start. Maybe Jeremy Grant could get into that mix. If it were me, I would probably go with Westbrook, then either a Brenus or Doug McDermott, Paul George, and then actually play Robertson at the four, uh, because that way you can minimize his lack of shooting if you're going to uh, and play him more really as kind of like a role guy have Steven Adams in the dunker spot on a lot of these plays. Uh, but I think uh, it's be interesting to see how they go at the four and where where they find space for Abritas and McDermott because I think you almost got to start one of those guys because playing them together defensively on the second unit is difficult to do as well. And maybe they bring Patterson off the bench and then they'll have a lot of options to close. They could go with a switchier lineup. They could play like Patterson, Jeremy Grant, Robertson and Paul George and Westbrook. I mean, that would be a really interesting lineup with just a ton of athleticism. Uh, and that's why I like them really, because I think they just have so much athleticism. It wouldn't surprise me if defensively, they are the team in the league that can give golden state the most trouble just because of their athletes in somewhat similar fashion, to the way they did in the 2016 Conference Finals.
0: Okay, I mean, I, I can follow that, but you can still see why I have a little bit of pause, right, as far as when you start looking at what you're suggesting, uh, as far as starting like McDermott or Abrinas, it's like, I, I don't know. But uh, but then again, you know, if you put them on the bench and bring them off the bench, then you're talking about playing them alongside Ennis Cantor as well. That, that doesn't work either. So uh, it's an interesting thing. I think the answer is Patrick Patterson. I think they have to start him. Uh, yeah. Which is a little bit, I yeah. guess that coaches sort of has always
1: had. Coaches have always had like this mind block against starting him, though, and like he'll start for five games and then not be good. And they're like, "Oh, he doesn't have the mentality to start. We got to bring him off the bench."
0: Yeah, I, I think this is going to be the, the the time they do it because. Uh, we know that, well, I, I don't know, Paul George doesn't necessarily want to play power forward. And I guess, okay, so then you, if you want to have uh, Robertson play that as a really small power forward, I, I don't know. It's it's confusing to me is all I'm going to say. But you're right. The bottom line is they finished, uh, where did they finish last year? Uh, what, was, what, what, what rank did they finish? 47
1: um, and 35, and they were the seventh, seventh seed, season. right? No, 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 I'm sorry, sixth seed. Sixth they seed. played against the Rockets, who are the, the three seed but they're really they're starting from really a lower point than that because they had you know pretty much an even point differential and they really got lucky with some of the heroics that Russell yeah. Westbrook had where he would score you know the last 15 points of the game and bring them back out and know that you could rely on that so I'm thinking of them as kind of starting from being a 500 team but adding Patterson and Paul George really I think gets you up there and I, I just I like the, the playoffs too because they could put lineups out there that are just extremely hard to attack defensively. E- even Russ, I know people really don't like his pick-and-roll defense, and I agree it's been really bad. I mean, He had, in the 2016 playoffs, he had one of the worst pick-and-roll defense games by a point guard they I've ever seen in that game two against Dallas when Raymond Felton just killed him. But yeah. But he can switch, and so if they're going to be switching everything, he's really strong in the post. He takes it personally when guys try to back him down. So he's not someone that you can just get a switch and go at in the post. So they to be able to have that type of athleticism potentially across all five positions is, is something that I think could be really difficult for a lot of teams to deal with.
0: Yeah, I, I can follow that. And by the way, my issue with Russ is his is off-ball defense. That's what really kills me. But then again, it doesn't really come back to haunt him unless, unless he's playing a team like the Warriors. It's like the only team that's going to move him around a lot on that weak side. So... Um, that that is an interesting uh, take. And you can argue, I suppose, that uh, with the addition of, of um, uh, Patrick Patterson and uh, Paul George, he, he does a little bit less on offense, and maybe he'll have a little bit more energy on defense and focus there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's, it's interesting. He could, they could be the same spot they were last year, or they can improve, uh, you know, I would say, a couple spots. And that kind of throws everything off because um, I don't think anyone was counting on them to be part of this Western Conference mix. And um, I'm not, not even sure if it matters uh, as you look at the top of the, uh, of the of the conference because the Warriors, I, I mean I had been saying, and I think Dave and I have been saying this together that you know it, it kind of feels like they had the best moves of anybody, which is patently unfair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is yeah, I mean, it's hard to say they had the best moves of, of anybody because I mean Houston got Chris Paul, you know I mean they didn't add a, a player of that caliber, but when you consider, where they were in terms of the cap. I mean, they basically were able to resign everybody. Joe Lacob was willing to pay. And with the help of Kevin Durant, taking about a $9 million discount from what the, the max would have been. And then they replaced guys who I thought were the weak links for them in Ian Clark, who I thought was kind of an overrated guy. He signed in new Orleans. They replaced him with Nick young, uh, more size, better shooter, uh, more athletic, uh, you know, improved defensively last year. Caspi, replace, using him to replace Matt Barnes, I think he's one of the most underrated players in the league, getting him for the minimum, a guy who could play the four, shoot with very deep kind of Ryan Anderson range, they're going to find a use for that as well. Um, and, let's see, who else? Oh yeah, and then Jordan Bell replacing McAdoo. Um I think, you know, McAdoo was someone that Kerr loved to play, who really wasn't any good. And so, they needed someone else who, and I don't, you never want to rely on a rookie, obviously, but they needed someone else who can be a switch guy defensively at center because they would, against like some of the best teams like Cleveland, when they wouldn't play green at center, they would just get killed. So now they have an option there as well, a guy who can block shots and be versatile. So I'm, I'm really impressed with what they did, and they didn't lose anybody important. That's incredible.
0: Oh, yeah. And that, that's the thing. Like, when you really thought about it, after the starters, there really wasn't much shooting besides Ian Clark. And now you can bring in Nick Young and Omri uh, Caspi. Two guys that could shoot it. Uh, and so they suddenly have, like, more shooting, which is crazy. Patrick McCall, by the way, I know you probably saw him in Summer League a little bit too, but I sure. did. And I even pulled him aside and said, like, I, I don't know if you realize it, but he's got, like, the glow. I mean, the guy, the guy was playing point guard and running the show. He was run, play, doing his clay imitation, running to the wing and nailing threes in, the, uh, in, um, in transition. He was defending. I mean, this is the guy who I think makes it really unfair.
1: Yeah, I liked him, and it, it helps, actually, that they have all these other guys. I mean, I think there may be a little frustration when we see Nick Young playing more than him because I think in a lot of circumstances he's going to be better the, than Young, but he's going to be a free agent, and he's going to be a restricted free agent coming up. And so the fact that all these guys will be playing over maybe that depresses his value, and they can get him for cheaper going forward as well. Uh, so I really think it, it's going to be – and now like guys like Iguodala, Sean Livingston – even Durant, they've got so much depth on the wing. I mean, Caspi and Nick Young, to me, are guys who can defend their position okay and shoot on the wing. I mean, how many guys like that are even out there in free agency? And for the Warriors to get those two guys, now KD, if they need to rest Draymond, they can. And so I think they'll be uh, really in great shape going into the playoffs not having to play their guys that many minutes.
0: Yeah. And I would have laughed in your face if you had said Nick Young could guard his position re- reasonably well before last year. But I can tell you, having watched the Lakers here la- you know a number of times, like a whole bunch of games, he was like giving out on defense. He was in his stance, he was moving the direction, he was really playing well. And I think the beauty of that situation is that Steve Kerr can just simply call up, I mean, sorry, uh, yeah, he can call up Luke Walton and be like, uh, Luke, like, you know, what did you say to him? Let me let me have some of those words because clearly it worked. Um, and I think that that's another, you know, un- underlooked connection that they have there that, like, Steve Kerr and Luke Walton have this connection. They could, you know, share share notes, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and it'll be a boon, of course, for uh, media members covering the Warriors as well that, that Nate Young will be there.
0: Yes, uh, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, I mean, that whole team is filled with guys who uh, are, are good interviewers. I think it's safe to say, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess who, the top guy would, is Draymond, right? Uh, Yeah, that's
1: probably true. I mean, okay. I, I don't really – I'm not that interested in interviewing guys like and they just say like controversial stuff. Like that's – to me, I, I'm not as into that stuff. But for people who – the aggregators will have a good time with the wares this year. I'm sure. <laughs> right.
0: Hey, don't knock the aggregators. You never know. Uh, we might I don't knock the
1: aggregators. End. I get my news from them, and and uh, <laughs> my buddy Dan Feldman is one of the best there. I mean, like I like the the ones who can find something and then actually add some good analysis on it. Like those. That's who I like to to read.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a cottage industry. We shouldn't knock it. Um, so, you know, okay, so we have the Warriors now, like, firmly ensconced for at least the other few years uh, as the prohibitive favorites uh, to win the championship every year. You know, someone asked me on Twitter earlier today, and I really didn't have a, an answer necessarily, was who is best positioned? And I'm not even saying that they have a chance, but who is best positioned to beat the Warriors next year?
1: Oh, man. Right? You know, I, I, get, I mean, all right, so who are the candidates here? Cleveland? Still, we'll see what happens with Kyrie. I, I think it's possible, actually, despite the utter incompetence that they've shown this offseason so far, that if they make the right Kyrie trade, yeah, it, it would be bad for the long-term future of the franchise. I don't think they're going to get a player who's as young as he is with as much upside as he is. <clears throat> but he, I think they could get players who are more versatile in trade for him that actually would help them match up a little bit better – defensively against the Warriors and then hope that LeBron James can help carry them home against them. So maybe there's still a chance that they could actually be better for trading Kyrie at least this year, or the future not maybe not. So we'll see where they end up there. Houston, I like what they did. I mean, obviously getting Paul, he's another one of these guys too, a point guard who can switch a little bit and then with Ariza, PJ Tucker, Luka Mute. Uh, Tarek Black is a guy who at least has some mobility defensively at, at mm-hmm. center, uh, Clint Capella. They've got at least some lineups that – I mean you're never – even your best lineups, even if you can have people who can switch across all five positions, the Warriors have so many good one-on-one guys, they're still going to score. But they can come pretty close to putting out some defensive lineups that at least like don't have too many weak points other than, of course, James Harden.
0: Uh Yeah, I, I can kind of see that also, although I kind of still feel like those games in a playoff series would still be 126 to 122 or whatever, which is not bad. <laughs> that could be pretty fun.
1: Yeah, it, it, although, I mean, the problem, too, is that I think, like, if you're Tucker—I mean, you saw that series against the Bucks in particular last year. I thought, you know, Tucker was taking, like, two shots a game and playing 30 minutes, you know, and, like, you mm-hmm. the Warriors will punish you if you're going to have a guy like that. And then Mute even— more so. So if you're going to play those guys together and Ryan Anderson really probably can't play against the Warriors best units. So you start to run into some problems there about maybe scoring with your off ball guys, not needing to be guarded because, you know, two way guys on the wing, you just with the resources they had available, tough to get. But I thought still they they did well to at least be able to throw some good offensive or defensive lineups out there. It's just you know, I think one side of the court may always suffer right. outside of having Paul and Harden, who, of course, of course are awesome.
0: Well, so does, does Mello – first of all, I guess – I'm not even sure Mello moves the needle, but it doesn't feel like there is a path to getting him on the Rockets at this point. Does it? Is there?
1: No, it doesn't because – think about it from Houston. So let's say you didn't have to give up anything, right, if you're Houston – Okay. Would you? How much would you be willing to trade for Mello? He's making basically 27 million the next two years. Let's say you could just send out kind of neutral salary to get him. Would how many draft picks would you be willing to, to give up to get him? Would you one first round pick, two first round picks? Like what is what yeah. is he worth in trade?
0: Well, Ryan Anderson's got a contract that's somewhere in the ballpark, right? Is he 20?
1: Right. Yeah, well, well, so, so I mean, where I'm, where I'm going here is, yeah, he, he almost certainly would have to be traded, and to trade him, the reporting from Zach Lowe, among others, has said that it would take two first round draft picks to get off that salary. He's owed twenty million basically over the next three seasons, and so you're basically saying, and then that doesn't even account for the fact that the Knicks will theoretically want something back. You're would right. have to send Anderson to a third team because the Knicks don't want. Anderson's salary so you're gonna have to give up two first round picks to get rid of Anderson then you also got to give the Knicks something I don't know that that Melo is worth something but the Knicks seem to expect that he is sure um so now I mean trading two first round picks and something else for Carmelo Anthony who as you mentioned probably doesn't really move the needle for them no I don't think that makes sense so I, I anticipate that Anthony will end up getting bought out at some point
0: well, here's what doesn't make any sense to me: Why the Knicks wouldn't want to? I don't know why they don't want Anderson. Uh, you know, they would be able to shed salary. They could get draft picks and take. Yeah, he Anderson goes. Back.
1: He goes a year. He goes a year longer, though, is the problem than Anthony. Okay. So, um, so you, you're you're putting another twenty million on, and when Kristaps Porzingis would be a restricted free agent in the summer of 2019, they might want to use cap space that year. And now you've got Anderson on the books for another 20 million, it would make that pretty difficult. So, okay, so I mean,
0: yeah, yeah, it's that yeah. one last year is the problem is what you're saying. If it, if it timed yeah. out better, they would, they would probably take him.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if it were just hey you take some draft picks, take Anderson and you know, we reduce our salary commitment a little bit now because Anderson makes less than Melo does. Yeah, I think it's that fourth year that really is the issue.
0: Okay now Is there a time uh, if they wanted to buy Anderson out? Is there a time limit to that or like they can't do it for X amount of time?
1: Oh, you're talking about the Knicks?
0: Yeah, what if they did Because they're gonna buy out uh, Mellow would probably be more expensive than to buy out Anderson.
1: Yeah, I mean buying people out almost Invariably doesn't save you that much money. I mean for example Jamal Crawford got traded to the Hawks, right? And so he was due 14 million this year and three million next year, and the Hawks were able to save about three million off of that seventeen million to buy him out. That's usually about you're probably not going to save more than at most twenty percent of what the guy is owed in a buyout, and that's only if that guy in particular has like more lucrative options. Like um, Crawford, for example, knew that he had four million dollars waiting for him in Minnesota when he got bought out, so he was willing to take a little bit less. With Anderson, I mean, and I agree he can play. It wouldn't be bad having him. Uh, although he and Porzingis in a defensive front court would be interesting, but I, I don't think that they could say, "Hey, you know, we have a way to get off of this twenty million without giving up assets." And he, you know, he's twenty nine now; he's only going to get older and slower as uh, time goes on.
0: Okay. Well, you know, speaking of, uh, so we got through that, the, the Rockets, and I agree that they're definitely going to be a, a challenge, but we, you know, we kind of overlooked the Spurs for a minute there, which is what happens every year. Um, and so, you know, the, the interesting thing about that game one that we saw before Kawhi got hurt was they were hammering them. And I think it was, the question now is, how, was, it, was it equal parts rustiness on the Warriors having not played for a week? Uh, does that rustiness usually only last for like a, 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 a first half? And then they were still getting killed in the third quarter, so that wasn't rustiness. So, you know, what are your thoughts? And also, what are your thoughts on their offseason moves? Because they didn't really do much either.
1: Yeah, I didn't care for their offseason, but I think that the Spurs' performance in that game one is a little overrated. They definitely killed them in that first game. But for the first half, but the Warriors just like weren't running anything good like they ultimately when the Warriors they love to move the ball around and play the beautiful game. I think that's very important for their culture to do that. But I think they maybe ran like four Steph Curry pick and rolls in the first half of that game Mm -hmm. and just did not involve the Spurs slow centers defensively at all out in the perimeter. They weren't doing actions to require them to defend out there. And then the Spurs were, the defense was real bad. And then in that third quarter, I mean, it was only about a four-minute period. But if you go back and watch the film of that, the Spurs made, like, three ridiculous shots. On Like, there was one play where, like, they, John Simmons hit a contested three in the corner with one on the shot clock, another one where, like, someone fell down and just, like, the ball kind of squirted to a guy at the top and he hit a three with the shot clock winding down. So the Warriors were already in the midst of coming back on them at at that point before the Kawhi injury so I don't think that it would have made that big of a difference I still think the Warriors the Warriors probably wouldn't have won that game one but I still think it would have been you know a five or six game series with Kawhi and then as for their offseason moves just I mean that Gasol contract is absolutely miserable I mean I guess to get him to opt out and get some flexibility they maybe had to promise that they would do this for him but to not get Chris Paul I mean and to take on a bunch of extra money. I thought they really I loved what they would be able to do in the summer of 2018 when there's going to be some pretty good free agents and not as many teams are going to have space, but then they really committed a lot of money and I think they're worse this year than they were last year anyway, having lost Simmons and uh Edmund. and Dedmon, yeah
0: yeah it's really uh, we 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 complained all year long why they didn't play Deadman more cuz when he did they would do it better and it, who and again it's who knows maybe he wasn't practicing hard and all those different things that we never know about which is you know pop had a reason yeah. for not doing it but uh yeah i think it really really killed them because they certainly need uh athletes and you know Deadman and
1: yeah. um they're going to win 55 to 60 games this year they'll do that all, all the time during the regular season but yeah i mean they just They lost maybe, you know, Simmons was easily one of their five best guys against the Warriors, and they lost him. And, you know, unless they're counting on Brandon Paul to replace him, a guy I'm not that familiar with, maybe they can make him into the next Simmons, but uh, expecting. Uh, them to guard the Warriors. I just, I don't see how it happens.
0: Right, and then you have to wonder if, you know, is, is Javante Murray ready because it doesn't seem like they're going to rely, you can't rely on Tony Parker anymore. I don't think they want right. Patty Mills starting, so that, that's an interesting conundrum. What did you think about Murray, you know, at, he had a pretty rough first start, I thought, in the playoffs and, and you know, rightfully so. The kid, had, you know, didn't have any experience there. Did you think he turned it around enough to see some glimpses into something that might be viable going into the next year
1: yeah it was ridiculous that they started him like they and then when they changed up to start mills and bring him off the bench he he was better i think he really is at the point now he can't shoot at all so if he's if you're expecting him to run a pick and roll you're probably going to be disappointed he really failed running pick and roll in summer league i think he had like 10 points on 28 possessions or something like that as uh, trying to score out of the pick and roll uh, and he was 0 for 3 on threes in like in four games you know so he's not even taking them much less making them i th- i thought he you know he has good instincts getting to the basket you know on a closeout if you're not guarding him he can kind of go by the guy and shoot a floater or get to the rim and i think he's got some hope defensively but uh, no i mean i i'm i'm not ready to rely on him as a high level rotation contributor in the playoffs at this point,
0: yeah, and we would be remiss if we didn't mention they do have a couple guys in their team that, they, that are newer in uh, that they signed Rudy Gay coming off of Achilles surgery, which is you know I, one of those things we never know, but we certainly haven't seen recently anybody come back very quickly from that. I'm still, it still hurts me when I watch. Uh, West Matthews run, uh, you know, even though he's, he was somewhat um, effective recently, they also have Joffrey Laverne, who's a guy who I'm really intrigued with, and I thought I've seen moments, and then also Bertons. I've also been very intrigued by these guys, and I almost feel like you know what, those guys could come in and really, you know, plug some holes as well.
1: Yeah, during the regular season, I think you're right. Like Danny, Danny, by the way, Laverne is like the guy that he like dislikes watching the most in the whole league. It's kind of funny actually that, that you mentioned him. I mean, he's he. Uh, I think offensively he's got some skills. He's got like that flat shot that he can make from from the corner from three. get into like a righty or lefty hook around the rim. Uh, But defensively, I think he's a major problem. The Spurs have had success getting stuff out of guys like that in the regular Mm -hmm. season just within the team system. Like you never would have thought that Gasol or David Lee could be reasonably effective defensively the way they were last year during the regular season. But and Bertans I like a little bit more. I think he's a, a guy who has underrated athleticism and a, a guy that they call a wetter could shoot from the perimeter and it's going down most of the time. So I think he's someone who could play a little bit more. But I think you mentioned the gay signing. My hope for them always was, hey, they got to just they got to play smart. They got to have more of a combo forward type at the four. They got to play Kawhi at the four. Maybe it'll be gay if he's able to return. They got a good medical staff there. Uh, but uh, to just get more versatile defensively and and get more shooting on the floor, because I just again like the two traditional bigs that Pop loves to do doing that against the Warriors or against Houston for that matter, I, I really just don't think that could be effective. Okay, so um, let's talk about that for at, a at least this Houston team.
0: There, okay, right, because you're right. There are probably you know combinations of two you know almost traditional bigs that would would hurt. So <laughs> so I guess that's the question: is are we Is that dead and gone? I can go through and I'm still confined to some lineups that people are running a lot of that have two traditional bigs. Because can't we – isn't the notion of destroying them on the offensive boards – I feel like we've gone away so far from that in an effort to get back on defense that we've forgotten that there is a value of creating multiple possessions uh, in a row – and uh, and I feel like is that going to be slow? Is that going to become extinct, or is someone going to finally go in there and they're going to get you know they're going to average eighteen offensive rebounds a game and really change the complexion?
1: Well, it's interesting because a lot of the teams that play with two traditional bigs, Utah is probably going to do that this year. The Spurs, as you mentioned, they are actually Utah comes out of the Spurs system with Quinn Snyder, Dennis Lindsey. Mm-hmm. The Spurs are one of the foremost teams in terms of getting back. Although you will see I, on occasion against the Warriors, they really will hit the offensive glass and they've hurt them on the offensive glass at, at times last year. But yeah, that is a, an interesting thought. But I think just in general, I mean, if you think about all the times that you go to the offensive glass, I mean, you, you, you're, you're the best offensive rebound rate that you're ever going to have as a team. Is probably in the, today's NBA, it'd probably be like thirty percent, right? Okay. A- and even if you only send one guy there, you probably get like twenty percent offensive rebounds. So you, you're basically your your window there is ten percent of possessions you might get an offensive rebound, and then you have a higher chance of scoring on that. That's maybe you know you, you score sixty uh, percent of the time, say uh, on those ten percent of possessions. But then if you're sending another guy to crash every single time. To get that extra 10%, if you're going to give up a fast break, you know, 50% more often, because I don't know exactly what those numbers are. People with access to SportView could tell you this, but if you're going to give up a fast break 50% of the time and only get the offensive rebound 10% of the time, whatever that number is, whether it's 50% or whatever, you know, it doesn't really seem to work out that well for. A lot of teams because transition especially with three-point shooting as well and semi-transition is just so powerful these days
0: ah now okay so that that is right that is the point I think in the traditional 20 years ago mindset when no one is running to the three-point line on the fast break uh, it might be more reasonable to trade that and that's probably what I mean if you would go back and look at the numbers if we ever had sport view back in the 80s you probably would see that that like you could mitigate a lot of the fast breaking that people yeah. are getting twos and, and whatever. Well, well
1: actually I mean in the 80s they had a lot more fast breaking uh, yeah. than they than they do today i mean like getting back on defense just wasn't as important teams just didn't run as hard teams just generally didn't play as hard in the 80s i think as they do now because you just have to cover so much more ground than you did back then like if you right. go back and watch film I mean you're playing everyone's playing within 15 feet of the basket you don't have these plays where it's like all right i gotta crash in from the perimeter all the way to the basket tag the roll guy and then sprint out Twenty-five feet to right. the three-point line, like you didn't have to give that level of effort defensively.
0: But also, we had much more of a mindset in the '80s to go after the offensive rebounds, so sure. naturally, right, we'd have more fast breaking from that as well, which uh, is interesting. So, I, so the numbers bear that out—that there was more fast breaking in the '80s than there are, than there is now.
1: I'm pretty sure that's the case. I think they played it at a faster pace, but that's that's more me just watching film from back then as well, where it just. They yeah. really pushed it. There wasn't as much of an emphasis on getting back. And a lot of times they would get the offensive rebound. But then if you didn't get the offensive board, you yeah. know, you had – because I always felt that the, your, the key to transition defense is actually getting your bigs back. Because if you've got a guy right. who's like a really good transition point guard, you know, like a Derrick Rose back in the day or LeBron or Westbrook, if you just have guards back, like that's not going to help you. They're just going to go right through those guys. you got to have a big – who's in position to actually like deter someone from getting to the rim in transition.
0: That's another great, great point, which is why, you know, good rebounding guards are, you know, in fact, maybe that should be the next sort of frontier is that we, we, you know, the point guards are the guys who should be trained to go try and get offensive rebounds more. I've thought of that
1: too. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or your three men that you say, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to have one big, his job is just to get back immediately. You know, maybe we have our center. And then if you have like a guy who's in the corner, you know the opposite corner when a shot goes up maybe you know your three man he just sprints in gets a running start yeah and kind of on the way and on the way to getting back on defense you got to get back to the center of the court anyway so you might as well just kind of run in see if you can get into rebounding position and then sprint back because guys are not really as trained to box out uh, as they used to be and if you get a running start you can really like get uh get up and uh, get some tip dunks or, or get on the offensive glass.
0: Yeah. And by the way, let's just say you did that a little bit. And then also hit the point guard, you know, get in there too for, for any kind of, you know, mid range rebound that comes out. If they don't get it, you could trap right away. And like, who knows, maybe it's a very, least you slow the ball going out a little bit and maybe you get a turnover. And then that becomes a whole bunch of numbers where, you know, two out of 10 times, maybe you get the steal versus four out of 10 times you give up a, a good shot and the transition. I don't know, but I, I I'm curious to see because I just feel like we the, the offensive rebounding thing. There's got to be a way to to get back to some sort of emphasis on that where it can help you. But but I, you're right as far as the numbers that you've quoted before. It you know it very quickly looks like it isn't worth um, a consistent yeah. risk. And that's
1: just me eyeballing it. Like I don't want someone to say okay, you know this is the exact percentage. Like I don't know exactly what that is, but I I do think that teams that have looked at it with the the sport view data, you can very easily come up with an empirical answer to that. And the smartest teams for a long time have not gone to the offensive class. But this is a point that Ben Falk made and it's also research in college is just that basically almost always height correlates with better defense and that going with two bigs, even if they're not necessarily bigs that you would think of as great defenders having more height around the basket, playing a traditional four, that's really more to help your defense. And you know, Tom Thibodeau certainly sees it that way with the signing of, of Taj Gibson this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you may be worse on offense, but generally, I mean, again, unless you're playing against a team like the Warriors or maybe Houston that just has so much shooting and so much ball handling it, it, that you just can't play a traditional big – Generally, those lineups seem to do better defensively and not as well offensively due to the lack of spacing.
0: For sure. And, and shout-out to Ben Falk. Ben Falk, write for us. Please, write for us. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> we, uh, he's perfectly happy, I guess, running on his own site. And, and boy, he, I would love to get, see him get more stuff because he's really good. Um, so let's talk about uh, any, any other surprises. Any, any team that you feel like has gone under the radar that no one's talking about that's going to have a surprising year for you?
1: Oh, that's an interesting thought. Who have a surprising year? We talk about everything so much here.
0: Yeah, that... I have the answer if you want it.
1: Oh yeah, no, yeah. Let's hear. Who are you thinking about. <laughs> the answer is Denver, isn't yeah, it? Yes. Well, see, that's just that's just not a surprise to me. I mean, I think that like for at least at least for us, like NBA dorks, like we knew that they had uh, one of the best offenses in the league mm-hmm. when they started starting Jokic last year, and then they added Paul Millsap. So, I mean, I, I think it's – and they've got a lot of young talent that presumably is going to improve, so I don't – I mean, what do you think they're going to be? You think they can get into? Are you talking about like them getting into like the top five in the yeah, West, or well, just making I, the playoffs?
0: I, I think they're going to screw around with a lot of this, a lot of what people have been, you know, assuming is going to happen. Because if you look at it this way, okay, the the top eight teams that made it last year, obviously Denver didn't make it, and I, I think they're a lock to make the playoffs this year. So that means someone's dropping down, and then you look at some of the other people that are going to improve. I mean, can you imagine Minnesota not making the playoffs?
1: No, I I think they would have to, even though I I don't really like the fit offensively of a lot of the pieces they have. So who
0: are the two teams that are dropping out who are going to be pretty sad?
1: Well, obviously Utah and the Clippers with the guys they lost are candidates for that. Memphis as well is a team that, especially with their health concerns, they're a year older. Parsons, I'm not counting on getting anything from him. Mm -hmm. So they... They're another team that, again, always seems to not have the greatest point differential, although they consistently seem to outperform it. But uh, I'm, I mean, those three teams, I think I would look at as the ones that will be in uh, the greatest potential difficulty.
0: That's interesting. So the 4th and the 5th, who, you know, you would imagine would be relatively safe as far as making the playoffs the next year, although the Clippers did. We can talk about that for a second. Oh, and the Jazz, both, I guess, right. They both went through some roster turmoil. So I I guess, you know, it's possible the Jazz could fall four places down. It's a long drop, but I guess they could do it. Uh, I'm intrigued by the Clippers, though. They they did some really interesting moves, Um, and I I don't know. I, I feel like they might have a shot to stay where they were at the very least.
1: Well, I, I mean, I don't see them being – I see them well below Minnesota and OKC at this point. I think if the things go well health-wise, I mean, Blake Griffin, there has been dueling reports on whether he's actually going to be ready to start the season. And considering that this is an injury that he suffered in April, I mean, anytime you're going to be out for six months with an injury and you have the injury history that he has, you're relying on explosiveness, you have to wonder both whether he's going to actually be available and then how good he'll be. Daniel Gallinari just broke his hand, obviously, punching a guy in the face, but another guy who's pretty injury-prone. I mean, if those guys can give you 70 games each, then, yeah, I think they might be a decent shot at the playoffs. We don't know what they're going to get over out of Teodosic either. I'm really interested to see where they end up defensively because uh, Chris Paul actually was great for them, and Gallo, not really an adequate defensive option at the three anymore. Teodosic, Lou Williams, like those guys are awful defenders, but... They also have Beverly and and DeAndre Jordan, who's a quality defender. So, how does that all mix together? You know, do the the good elements or the bad elements of their defense win out? I think they should be able to score reasonably well with some of the personnel they have. That,
0: that, you know, you now you just bummed me out because I thought I, I had some you know irrational exuberance going on, and now
1: you're you they'll seeking... be interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll give them that, but all I right. I think they're just the the injuries are the biggest concern for me. Although, I mean, you're not the only one. I think uh, Kevin Pelton. So I mean, his productions show them actually being a lot better than people think that that they might be. But I I don't I mean I think just they don't have as much talent yeah. to me as Minnesota or, or OKC.
0: That is true. Uh, and and Doc will have to do some of that coaching thing as well to make this uh, squeeze some stuff out of them. So. Uh, we'll have to see how that plays out, but yeah, you, you're speaking some truth, and uh, and I recognize all those things, and so I, I like, from my point of view, in the off season, I tend to, to sort of assume people are going to be healthy. I, I don't know. I, I kind of just want to ignore any kind of you know injury issues uh, in the past. It's hoping that maybe they, whoever it is, has figured it out. I guess it's not the best way to do it, huh?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think uh, a lot of GMs are in that same boat, and sometimes uh, you have to do that, right? Like if you took Memphis from last year, right? Chandler Parsons was coming off a knee surgery that was more severe actually than we thought at the time. He actually had another uh, meniscus repair and he's uh, had a lot of issues. But for Memphis, they had this cap space. It was going to go away as soon as they signed Mike Conley because he had a low cap and then they had to sign him to the max. They didn't really have any flexibility to do anything else. Parsons had the most upside of any free agent that they could sign. And so it's like, hey, you know what? We realize there's probably a 50% chance this guy's not going to be healthy. That's how it turned out. But they signed him because, hey, you know, we have these good players. This is the only guy we can add. We've got to do it, and you just you got to roll the dice. And I think that's what the Clippers did. I would have liked to have seen them just completely rebuild. Uh, they got some good assets in that Paul trade that they could have moved, maybe try to trade DeAndre Jordan, really bottom out this year, and try to use some cap space, get some assets going forward. Mm-hmm. But that I think – Steve Ballmer, Doc Rivers, that's not their mentality. They're trying to get this new arena, as you know, in LA. So I don't think they felt like that's something that they could do.
0: Yeah. Well, and I agree. They probably, they've been better off doing that. But uh, you're right. That's, that's when all the other uh, ancillary things that come into play when you don't oftentimes realize the motivations. And so, well, you know, one little quick shout out. I mean, Memphis, I do like, again, I'm going to assume that Chandler Parsons is going to be healthy and, and have his, the kind of production that, we, that he had been promising for all these years. Uh, they did it very nicely uh, you know, with who they've added and what they've done to this team, wouldn't you say?
1: I liked what they did. I thought that Ben McLemore was a, a decent risk. He's someone, uh, John Hollinger, one of their executives, when he back when he was writing in the public sphere, he introduced this concept of a second draft where guys who, like McLemore, who have talent, flame out in their rookie contracts, and then there's a chance to get them and maybe rehabilitate them. A little bit. They still got to get Jamichael Green back, though. He's he's a restricted free agent, hasn't signed yet. So I mean, well, if we assume if he comes back, that's good. And uh, Tyreek Evans to just give someone who can do more off the dribble. You mentioned that Parsons. I think either one of Evans or Parsons hopefully will be healthy at one time and give them someone else who can attack off the bounce in addition to Conley. So I think, given their limited resources, again, they're not a team that's really willing to pay the tax mm-hmm. uh, that they did. Okay.
0: Yeah, and I, I I like Dylan Brooks. I, I, it's kind of confusing to me why his stock dropped so low, uh, but I think he can do a lot of things for them, and it's a good situation. Uh, really quickly about the Ben Mclemore thing, the rehabilitation word is exactly right because I have been in some of those practices and I'd seen how Boogie treated him, and and I know Ben Mclemore a little bit, and I could sense that you know he's the kind of guy that's going to be affected by that every day over time. And uh, it was really sad because the kid can shoot. He's got beautiful mechanics, but, you know, shooting is a lot of it is mental. And if you're in your head uh, stuck there, uh, it's really hard to be, um, you know, a productive player. So uh, it it feels to me like he's going to he will be that guy that's going to be rehabbed and really uh, remind us that he was worthy of a top. What was he? a Top five pick.
1: Uh, number seven in the 2013 draft.
0: You know what I mean? Like it's, you know, for a guy like that, I think that that's huge. And I feel like, uh, if he can get into the right, uh, in, in a positive setting without a teammate that's screaming at him every day, I think he'll do a lot better.
1: Well, and also I think if they're just, they have some more creators on this team, he's got nice rise on his jump shot. If he can just concentrate on taking spot ups and then he's got the athleticism to defend, maybe if he's in a better defensive culture Mm -hmm. uh, that he can contribute more on that end.
0: For sure. Well, the, the culture's art is still there with a the grit and grind. And uh, so I would expect him to do well. And you know what? This culture has been great for this pro- podcast. Certainly we ran through, I mean, this must be a record. I don't think we've ever gone through this many teams in this much detail in this short of time. <laughs> Nate, uh, really great stuff.
1: Hi, a hey, uh, pleasure uh, coming on. Happy to do it.
0: Yeah, and in case you know, you, you you have your own little podcast going on there. People might not know about it, uh, dunked on basketball. You can check it out there as well. It's uh, <laughs> it's always. I'm sure everyone who's listening to to mine is listened to yours before mine. So, uh, great work on that side. I'll be sure to check out what you're doing. Anything exciting coming up uh, at the end between now and the start of the season for you guys?
1: Well, we're just doing previews of all 30 teams, and I have someone on from each local market and. uh just talk about each team for 45 minutes in uh, the type of depth we tried to to do today. So I I always look forward to that. It's a great way to wrap my head around, you know, what really is these off seasons are going to mean for these teams on the court and then get into doing some predictions and, and set the stage for the season
0: absolutely well uh, i hope to see you in, in the next near future at some point probably around training camp I'll, I'll run into you up in the bay area and uh again thanks nate for coming on and don't forget sports fans at beatball breakdown we're not a channel we're a conversation you in are you in Nate?
1: absolutely